This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Huckberry. Huckberry is my favorite store. It's my go-to place. They have everything from clothing, camping equipment, and just cool gear like pocket knives and stuff for your everyday carry. They're also owned and they're exclusive sellers of my favorite brand of clothing, Flint and Tinder. Everything I wear these days is from Flint and Tinder t-shirts. They've got some new selvage stretch denim jeans that are fantastically comfortable. And of course, their 10-year hoodie. And you're going to need one of these with the fall days coming up. What I love most about Flint and Tinder, everything's made right here in the good old US of A, even sourced from USA companies. If you want to try Huckberry out at a discount for your first time. This is only for first time purchasers. Just use, go to huckberry.com, use code art15 at checkout to get 15% off your first purchase. And if you want to see some of my favorite picks from Huckberry, just go to aom.is slash aomhuck, where you see some of the things I've gotten from Huckberry over the years. Again, discount is art15 for first time purchasers at huckberry.com. Go check it out. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When you hear the word popular, you're probably transported back to high school where, even if the social scene wasn't quite broken up into jocks and nerds as depicted in movies from the 90s and 80s, various groups and cliques formed some semblance of a social hierarchy. And even as an adult, you probably remember where you stood in that pecking order and have some powerful emotions associated with that. My guest today has researched why popularity plays a key role in our social and psychological development and how our place in the social pecking order, even as children and teenagers can affect our happiness and well-being even when we're in our 30s and 40s. His name is Mitch Princeton. He's the professor of adolescent psychology at the University of North Carolina and the author of the book Popular, The Power of Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World. Today on the show, Mitch breaks down the two types of social status that he researches, popularity and likeability. He then shares research that suggests that while popularity comes with some short-term benefits, it also has a tremendous amount of long-term downsides. And instead of focusing on popularity, Mitch argues that learning to be likable can get you all the benefits of status without the drawbacks and shares what you can do to become more likable in your own life. He then digs into the research that shows how children as young as five are already aware of who's likable and who isn't. And they're already forming these pecking orders and how and why that status sensitivity goes into overdrive in your teenage years and how being likable at a young age can have benefits well into adulthood. Fascinating show filled with great insights and practical tips. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is popular. Mitch Princeton, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so you just, you're a psychologist. You just published a book called Popular, The Power of Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World. I'm curious, popularity, it's, it's a touchy topic for a lot of people. What got you researching that idea, popularity and particularly status? Yeah, you know, I have been interested in popularity since even I was a kid. I'm not sure exactly why, but I was always so curious why some folks were so much more popular than others. It was when I got to grad school that I started to realize that it turned out to be way more important than even I had thought. Um, I was surprised to learn how much popularity affects our, our health and our futures and our kids. And uh, it really just took off from there. You mentioned in the book, at the beginning of the book, that you, you taught a course, at, I guess you're at UNC, right? University of North Carolina. I am. Yeah. You taught a course on popularity and you didn't think it would garner much attention, but it was like one of those classes where kids were, you know, sitting in the 
the alleyways, trying to like, hopefully someone would drop the class so they can get in. I mean, why do you think people are so interested in this topic? Yeah, it was crazy. You know, that first time that I taught it, it was actually when I was at Yale and they don't have a pre-registration system. So anyone who wants to take a course just shows up. And when I got there, there was this huge crowd outside the building, which I had no idea was for the class, but it turned out that 500 kids had uh, showed up to take this. I asked them, you know, why are you all so interested in this topic? Are you are you looking to feel better about your own high school experiences? And, you know, that wasn't it at all, actually. I was really surprised. Um, these kids at Yale, they had some really cool opportunities, and many of them had already been interns at, you know, for uh, Congress people, and they had worked in hospitals and in sports teams. What they said was that popularity is a dynamic that continues to play out in every way uh, imaginable as adults. It really matters for who gets hired or not. It matters for who has their ideas heard versus not. Um, It even relates to uh, our happiness. And they recognize that these really smart kids really saw that popularity dynamics, it's not something we typically learn, but it's one of the most important skills that we have. And they wanted to know how to succeed as adults. I think when most people think about popularity, they probably think back to high school where, I don't, I mean, I think this was more so when maybe when we were in high school or growing up, where being popular meant you were on, you were a football player or a cheerleader, you were kind of a jerk, et cetera. But in your book, the idea of popularity that you're highlighting is much more nuanced than that. And that there's actually different types of popularity. Uh, What are those two types and what are their characteristics? Yeah. So one type of popularity is exactly the kind that you say. It's those, you know, cheerleaders, football players, the ones that were maybe even a little bit aggressive or mean to others. Um, But somehow they had that kind of status. You know, everyone knew them. People wanted to be like them. That is one kind of popularity, but it's not the first one that we experience. The first kind of popularity we start experiencing, believe it or not, as young as when we're three years old. And when you ask a three-year-old who's the most popular, they pick the kid who's the most likable, someone that makes them feel good, someone that they enjoy spending time with. And that likability factor um, continues to be a form of popularity that is important for the rest of our lives. But our adolescent brains kind of turn us on to this brand new form of popularity that starts at around the age of 11 or 12. And it's that status type. The reason why it's really important for people to pick up on these two very different types is because they lead to completely opposite outcomes. Okay. So yeah, when I read that, so there's status popularity. I've read other psychological research on the, the area of status and whatever. And there's like some other, some other people have differentiated the, between the two. Like there's status popularity would be like dominance, right? Where you kind of achieve that status by, you know, you can be aggressive, et cetera. And then likability sounds a lot like prestige where it's more of an earned where you, 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 you're useful to people. And because of that usefulness, because you're helpful, people give you status. Yeah, that's about right. I mean, you know, about 30% of those who have high status are also really, really likable. The rest of them are actually quite hated by others. And similarly, um, there are many, many people who are likable, but never have any status at all, but they still benefit from having likability. Um, we really do, want to be likable and want our our kids and coworkers to be likable. It helps in pretty mysterious and fascinating ways. But 
But status is, uh, is all about kind of the dominance and aggression and really making yourself seem somehow better than or more important than others. So you often hear people say, you know, oh, status doesn't matter. Who cares what other people think? I don't care what other people think about me. But you highlight research in the book that shows that low status can have some serious detrimental effects on people. What are some of the downsides of, of low status? Yeah. So if you're low in likability or low in status, it actually does lead to a lot of negative outcomes. Most of the research has looked at those that are disliked. And those folks, indeed, um, are at much greater risk for problems down the road. Uh, they tend to be the low likable kids tend to also be aggressive um, and they miss out on so many opportunities where either they could have gotten ahead or they could have learned better skills. Um, they're the last invited to every party. They're the last to learn how to date and make friends. Um, and they're the last pick to be part of groups, uh, even as adults. And that kind of gives them a disadvantage that continues to perpetuate you know, year after year, context after context. And it's not only, you know, the social stuff, I mean, this actually affects us, can affect us physiologically as well, right? Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> I, I had no idea that this was such a powerful force, but it, it turns out that our bodies are really very programmed to make sure that we are part of the herd, because I guess it used to be the case that, you know, maybe 60,000 years ago that, being surrounded by others and accepted by others really guaranteed our survival. If we were alone, there was a, a better chance that we would die. So we now see that the brain responds really dramatically at the very moment that uh, you start to perceive that you might be getting excluded or rejected. And that trickles down, believe it or not, even to our DNA. There's dormant DNA that we're all walking around with, but it's shut off. And at the minute that you start perceiving that you might be excluded, that DNA turns on and it turns on in a way that activates what's called a pro-inflammatory response. In other words, it prepares your body to be injured because that's what would happen to you if you were alone, you know, years ago. And because uh, we are now in a society where you're not likely to get injured at the moment you're excluded, that inflammatory response is unnecessary and actually becomes harmful. It's interesting that the vast majority of diseases that we're affected by as humans today are because of this hyper-inflammatory response. Yeah, going back to that idea where people say, I don't care about status. What I think they often, when they say that, what they mean is like, I don't care about a particular type of status, or I don't care about having status or belonging to that particular group, but they need some sort of status, whether it's part of a different group. So you might not be, if you're in high school, you might not be a football player, but you know, you could do something else. You need to be a part of some sort of group. Exactly. I mean, we don't necessarily all want to be the cool kids anymore, or we don't want to be celebrities necessarily, but it is in fact human nature to care about the way that you interact with others. You know, we are a human species and we may not be the kind of species that cares about it in the high school way anymore. But we are a species that is attuned to our standing among others. And we individually care about connections with others, you know, absolutely in, in very profound ways. And what's important is that I think that those folks that pretend to think that popularity is completely irrelevant might be missing out on a few really important ways that they could be helping themselves and, and being a lot more happy. There's an there's a important medium place between being too concerned about popularity and pretending that you don't care about it at all. Because 
it's it's more important that we recognize it's a real force in our lives and let's use it for for good. So let's talk about this status type popularity, the one I think we often think of when we think of popularity. You mentioned earlier that there's people you can be popular and have this sort of status popular, but at the same time be despised. Or how is that possible? Yeah. So. The people who have the highest status, whether they be CEOs or, you know, those cheerleaders and football players, they tend, there are a couple of problems. The first is that, especially if they experience that as kids, they tend to be, research says, a bit too focused on their standing and their status. Every interaction is measuring up whether others have as much status as them. And when they have failings, they tend to attribute it to being too concerned about status. And that's a problem because no one likes a status seeker. You know, we, we kind of look at that as being uh, too egregious as an attempt to garner attention and, and acclaim. And, you know, that's a turnoff. But the second uh, important issue is that one of the most effective ways of getting status is to be aggressive, to put others down as a way of making yourself a little bit higher on that status hierarchy. And aggression is the single biggest predictor of being disliked. So what happens is you have these high status folks who can never stop caring about their status. They put other people down in really aggressive ways and they seem so focused on their status that they're no longer actually connecting with people as people. They're just instruments to make them feel more important and more noticeable. And that is how people who are too focused on status become really, really disliked. And then eventually that dislike will eventually kind of knock them off the, the totem pole, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone that I interviewed for the book and, and everyone who's ever been in a workplace probably can tell you the story of the, the corporate climber who was able to, you know, get really high. But ultimately, they, they reached a limit because they were so dislikable. And they were uh, used others so much that it finally all collapsed for them. And, uh, you know, that, that happens in so many different ways. Uh, we all know those stories and they're true. That's exactly the way that the research says that it works. And this also happens with chimpanzees. Uh, I know that there's some males that can be, you know, become the alpha male through dominance where they just basically beat the crap out of the other ones. But eventually, like the other chimps team together and they just they beat the crap out of the alpha chimp and make him go away. And they put in something, someone else who's more, there's actually, I think chimps have the same idea of, of status. There's like dominant status and there's prestige status. You can climb up the higher chimp hierarchy by being like, you know, grooming the other chimps, providing food, et cetera. And those are the ones that tend to stay on the top the longest. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, there's, it's not an accident that we have that similarity because the part of our brain that cares so much about status and is responsive to social rewards, it's not the part of the brain that's unique to humans, which is more the cortex. It's the part of the brain that's really primitive. It exists in a lot of species. And it's this part that says that we will be rewarded when we think about, look at, or have any interaction with high status people. And when we're, whether we're on Instagram or whether we are uh, feeling that kind of influence and that power in you know offline worlds it activates that part of the brain um so if we seem pretty similar to other you know less developed species in that way that's for really good reason and there is something very kind of primitive and animalistic about the ways that some people seek status and attack others in order to get it it, it in fact is exactly the way that we see among chimpanzees 
So this status type popularity, it comes with cost eventually. And I mean, eventually you'll be, you know, kind of you know, hoisted on your own petard. But you also highlight there's psychological cost for pursuing this type of popularity. Like it actually makes you feel terrible, even though you're feeling good too a bit. That's right. There's a remarkably high rate of depression among CEOs celebrities will be the first to tell you that they're awfully lonely. And, you know, a number of the celebrity interviews in the book really talk about exactly the process of how status starts to create a persona that's not really who they are, but they have to maintain that persona and feed that persona. And people end up really being interested more in the persona than the person that they really are. And it makes them very lonely. Um, Research that has followed those most popular kids in high school or has looked at the folks who have high status as adults, have found that they're at much greater risk for substance use, loneliness, anxiety, and problems with their relationships. Their closest friends and partners actually don't think that they have good relationships with those high status folks. So, I mean, if, the, if this type of popularity, this status dominance type, type popularity comes with you know, social and psychological loss, why do people even seek it? Like, what's going on there? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's, it's part of who we are as humans. You know, we are those kinds of animals that care about it. We used to be a species that would grow out of that desire to be high in status and, and, you know, be cool in that way. But things really changed. They changed somewhere in the 80s when our society started to focus more and more on ways that anyone could try and get that instant fame and status. And Really, if you look at it, the entire dialogue and and the virtues that we care about as a society started to change. Um, You know, instead of relying on one another and caring about community and connection, everyone wanted what sometimes is called the American dream, but really has morphed into having your own reality show and having the most Twitter followers and somehow making yourself seem more important than everyone else. And we are now a society where you can exist pretty independently. You can even just sit at home and have everything delivered to you and, you know, feed your, your Facebook profile. Um, it's no accident that the more that we have distanced ourselves from others, the more we've started to favor status over likability. And that's become a, a really big concern. Um, in some ways, we've kind of developed a society to make us all want the very thing that will hurt us the most. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. All right. I try to make the most out of my time, always looking to learn something new. And that's why I love watching The Great Courses Plus. With The Great Courses Plus, I have unlimited access to stream and download thousands of fascinating lectures from the top 1% of professors in America. You can learn about anything that interests you from history, psychology, even how to stay in shape, brain science, art history, you name it, they've got it. It's such a great way to spend downtime, whether it's 30 minutes or a full weekend of binge watching. So if you want to check this out, one course I recommend you check out is Outsmart Yourself, Brain-Based Strategies to a Better You. These are scientifically proven cognitive things you can do with your brain to jumpstart a habit, quit procrastinating, et cetera, et cetera. Great course, so it's Outsmart Yourself. And if you want to try it out, got a discount offer for you. My listeners can get a full month of unlimited access to all of the Great Courses Plus video lectures for free. But to get this offer, you must go to my special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness to get one month of full unlimited access to all their video lectures. Also by Indochino. So something we've mentioned on the site over the years, even on the 
podcast, we've had style guests, is that every man should have at least one suit in their wardrobe. Even if you're a blue collar worker, you should have a suit because you're going to wear this to weddings, funerals, a night out on the town, an award ceremony, or maybe a job interview. Now, you can go to the department store, get an off the rack suit, and it's going to fit you okay. But it's not going to fit you perfectly, even after you do some tailoring, because that thing was designed to fit multiple size bodies. There's parts of it you can't tailor it without destroying the coat. Now, the best option is to go made to measure custom suit. You're probably thinking that's going to cost an arm and a leg. Not with Indochino.com. With Indochino.com, you can get a made to measure suit sent directly to your door for about the same price you would pay at the department store for an off the rack suit. It's an easy process. You go to Indochino.com. I did this. I got a Navy suit from them. It looks fantastic. You go through, you can customize how you want your suit to look, the color, the fabric type, whether you want vents or no vents on your jacket, cuffs, no cuffs on your pants. And then you just go through this easy to follow measuring video process they give to you. You put in your measurements. You probably need some help with somebody. And then in a couple weeks, you have a made to measure suit sent directly to your door and mine fit me like a glove. And if the suit doesn't fit you right, you send it back and they're going to fix it for you so that it fits perfectly. Now, Got a special discount for my listeners if you want to try this out, if you're intrigued. You can get any premium Indochino suit for just $379 at Indochino.com when entering manliness at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. $379 is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at the department store. This is a great deal, guys. Plus, shipping is free. Again, Indochino.com, promo code manliness for any premium suit for just $379 and free shipping. You'll never have to worry about badly fitting suits or expensive trips to the tailor again. Get ready to look like a million bucks. And now back to the show. Yeah. And you also highlight research too in the book that this the status seeking popularity that people go for, like it actually can make like it shuts down parts of the brain where, you know, the executive control, like sometimes people do terrible things. They know it's terrible, but they do it anyway, so they know that it will get them some sort of status. Yeah. So that part of the brain, that real primitive part of the brain, it it's of course connected to all the other parts of the brain and people are starting to figure out now, once you activate that kind of part that's really responsive to that status or what neuroscientists call social rewards, we're starting to learn a little bit about like how that affects the other areas. And one of the areas that it has direct lines to apparently is what's called the prefrontal cortex. That's kind of like the brain's brakes. It's you know what stops us from doing impulsive things. And yeah, the more that we kind of get that status uh, experience and, and we get the activation of the, the social rewards part of our brain, it seems to shut down the brakes. Um, so we're more prone to do impulsive acts, especially because people with high status get rewarded every time they do something aggressive and impulsive. So it kind of teaches them if you want higher status, keep on doing aggressive, impulsive stuff. You know, these days we all wake up in the morning and see exactly what's happening on Twitter and who's saying what in the political world or elsewhere. And we see this process playing out every day. It's exactly the way the research discusses it. Right. It made me think of, there's like a kid on YouTube. He's not a kid. He's a grown man now. He's, he does like pranks and he basically just, just is annoying. He just makes people feel terrible, but uh, he gets a lot of YouTube followers because of it and he gets a lot of views because of it. So that's probably, that's probably what's going on. Yep, exactly. All right. So let's talk about likability, right? So status, dominance, popularity is the not good kind. What can people do to be more likable? I think we referenced, we refer to a little things, some things you can do, just be useful, be helpful to others. But what are some other things people do to become likable? You know, there's so many things that we can do because there's not one single recipe, but there are a couple of things that seem a little bit less obvious that I think are really important to highlight because a lot of people think that in order to be likable, you have to kind of kowtow to everyone else's wishes and you have to somehow be passive. It turns out that's exactly wrong. 
um, the most likable people are actually the best leaders. And the way that they lead is that they make everyone feel included. And that's key, is you make people feel like they're part of the herd. And you suddenly become the leader of the herd for doing so. The ways that you might do that is rather than tell other people that their ideas are bad and wrong and your ideas are better, it's to make sure that everyone feels like their input was important, appreciated, um, it was met with a positive response, and then maybe synthesizing that and moving people in the direction that, that you think is, is necessary. You know, that's okay. That can work. And in fact, that's a really good idea to do, but, but not by overpowering others' opinions or making them feel less than. That's really important. Other ways that we make people feel part of the herd is just by generally being very positive and enthusiastic around them. When they feel like their presence is met with um, enjoyment and, and kind of, you know, being really pumped by the fact that they're around and the things they have to say, they automatically like you because it makes, you, it makes them feel like, wow, I'm an important part of this interaction. Um, I'm needed. I'm wanted. And we're kind of programmed to want to feel needed and wanted. So you make people feel that way and they're going to like you forever. Yeah, this it sounds uh, like the archetype for this. I've just, we, a long time, a few years ago, we did a whole series about Dwight Eisenhower and his leadership style. And like Ike was like that. Like that's what made him such an effective leader. He was optimistic. He listened to people. He tried to make people feel involved in the process. And as a consequence of that, like people saw him as a leader. That's right. You know, a lot of people will talk about the boss that they would be willing to do anything for. And when you ask them to tell you about that boss, they'll say things like, they would shake my hand and look me right in the eye. And I really felt like they knew who I was or cared who I was or or they'll tell you about somebody who, you know, met them years ago, but still remembered their name and something important about them. It's those people that make you feel truly cared about and connected, that make you feel part of the herd and like your presence is important to them. Those are the people that we tend to like the most. They also become those with the highest status because they use their likability very wisely. It's very different than the person that gets high status because they've stepped on everyone else. So how do you know if you're likable or not? Right? That, that's the, you know, you might think you are, but you're actually not. Yeah, that's a really good question because we're actually not the best judges of this ourselves. I sometimes joke that you should gather all of your friends in a room and ask them. And if the room you're in is empty, then that gives you the answer that you need. But if... If, uh, if you do speak with others and you feel like you're getting a positive response from them, in other words, they're happy when they're around you, they're smiling, they're laughing, that's kind of a good yet obvious kind of clue. Um, a lot of us can look at our relationship histories. You know, is there a pattern of people getting close to us and then more distant? Is there a sense of people getting more agitated with us? You know, do people seem to get more energized when we're around them or do they seem to kind of start to downward spiral into a, a negative loop. You know, these are the best ways we can tell, but in the research, we don't ask people how likable they are because we don't expect them to give us a valid answer. We have to ask the people around them and they give us the information that we need. So let's go back to this idea of how our status as children and how that has, that can follow us into adulthood. First off, like, why is that, right? I mean, when you're an adult, you're sometimes you feel like I sometimes I feel like I'm a completely different person than the kid I was when I was 14. Yet the research shows that that experience I had as a 14 year old is influencing me now. So what's going on there? Yeah, there's a couple things going on, but one of the things 
that happens is that it turns out that in our mind's eye, you know, we, we sometimes do think of us ourselves still as being young. It, it's kind of an interesting duality. A lot of us will say, I'm a completely different person. You know, I'm, I'm not at all uh, the adolescent that I used to be. But other times we might feel like the way we looked back then or the way that people treated us back then still haunts us a little bit. There's even a study that shows that um, it's not how tall you are as an adult that predicts your salary. Tall people make more money than shorter people. But it's how tall you were when you were 16 that makes a bigger difference. As if we carry around that mental image of who we were as an adolescent for the rest of our lives. And there's now research to support that. Those old autobiographical memories when we were young, they actually serve as a filter. They are biasing us what we see and how we interpret what we see every single day. There's a really cool study where they asked folks with prior histories of being popular and prior histories of not being popular to all watch the same exact video with social interactions. And what they found was that the people who grew up popular they tended to focus on the parts of the video where people were having positive interactions. They even had them wear eye tracking devices to see what their eyes looked at. And they found that those people spent most of the time staring at the parts of the video where people were happy and having good interactions. The exact opposite happened for people who grew up unpopular. They spent their time staring mostly at the negative interactions in that same video. And when asked later to talk about what the video was like, they told a very sad story about the exact same video. And the reason why that's important is because that's what's happening to us every day. You know, two people walk away from the same experience with a somewhat different interpretation of what just happened. And that all stems back to what happened to us in adolescence, believe it or not. That's what's guiding these filters and biases. What is it about adolescence that sort of sets this stuff in stone, that really makes it, uh, makes status uh, top of mind, like we're more attuned to it? Yeah, so there are two part times in our life when our brains change really dramatically. One is when we're infants, but the second is the transition to adolescence. And that's when we really develop uh, kind of the brain that we will have for the rest of adulthood. And we start to learn how to store, you know, these memories for a long time. Our brain does that well. You know, Adolescence is the time that we start to establish our first sense of a firm identity. If you ask little kids about who they are as a person, they don't really have a good answer, you know, but if you ask an adolescent, they use a lot of words that reflect how much they're starting to understand themselves as a, as a person that's different from others and has stable traits. There's something about the primacy of our identity being established in adolescence for the first time that ends up being really powerful, you know. It's probably why when you ask someone about popularity or about their adolescence, they still talk about it kind of emotionally sometimes. You know, it's as if that experience just happened, even though it could have been decades ago. That stuff in adolescence sticks with us. It's really an important part of who we are, even decades later. So basically, we're, we're establishing patterns in adolescence and how we interact based on our status carries over to adulthood. Like, what can we do as adults? Let's say, you know, we, we have this tendency to not be likable. We do things that, because that's just what we're used to. Like, how can you get over that high school self of yours and, and start acting in a way that will allow you to be likable and gain more status in a positive way? Yeah, that's a great question and a really important one. This is what I really hope people can get from the, the book and why I wrote it is to finally get over kind of 
all of those experiences and be able to live a happier life now. So here's what needs to happen. Um, we, most of us tend to think that we are so beyond our adolescence that we're completely a different person now and none of what happened to us before is relevant. We try and sweep it all under the rug. That's the problem, is that we are likely to repeat the patterns that are happening if we don't acknowledge that those are the patterns that we have. The first thing we need to do is just come to terms with who were we as adolescents and let's not sweep it under the rug. Let's talk about it and let's think about how that might be making us a little more sensitive to rejection now or a little too prone to expect the worst from people now. Let's own that stuff. And then once we recognize that, it's actually remarkably easy to start noticing when we're falling into that trap. So when we're in an interaction, we walk out assuming that something bad just happened, checking in with others and getting a sense of whether everyone saw it the same way. And when you realize that you are maybe in the minority in that interpretation, starting to realize, wait a minute, I think that that's a little bit of the legacy that came from my adolescence. Let me check myself on that. Let me open up the possibility that my automatic reactions to things might be a little bit biased. And once you start getting in the habit of just questioning those automatic, what feels like your instincts and realizing that they've maybe not helped you so much, it starts to become really easy to change them and to change your biases and your filters in ways that are really, really powerful. But the first step is realizing that you have a bias at all, which means taking those memories out from under the rug and really looking at them. And then you'll people start noticing as they start acting and, you know, acting in a way that makes them more likable. There's like a feed positive feedback loop that begins a virtuous cycle that starts. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, if you walk into a room and you have your arms folded and you're, you're not making eye contact, research says that people around you, it will actually change their mood. They will feel badly. They will feel more depressed and they will attribute that to every time you walk in the room, you're kind of the downer, you know, um, this is kind of another way that we repeat patterns. We kind of assume I'll be rejected when I enter this new experience. And then we behave in ways that reify and guarantee that we'll be rejected. So it turns out it's just as easy to change things the other way. If you walk into a room expecting something positive to happen, then without even trying, it's actually more likely that you will get a positive outcome just by having that expectation. And when that happens, it tends to feed on itself in this incredibly cyclical and powerful way. Um, while researching the book and kind of thinking about some of those things myself, I was able to even try it out, you know, in, in a few different ways and talk with people who have done that and look at research. And the effects are incredible. Just um, the most subtle things that you do in a social interaction or ways that you think about uh, expecting acceptance and uh, and being more popular and having favorable outcomes, it can trigger a, a cycle that lasts for days and weeks and months. So we, you've talked about a little bit, but how has social media influenced our status drive? I mean, this is a, a relatively new thing, right? Like the past 10 or 12 years where everyone can have a platform, basically. That didn't exist uh, in the 80s or 90s. So how has that changed the status game? So social media, you know, can be used in a lot of different ways. And it can be used as a way of connecting with others and becoming more likable, sharing things and, uh, you know, developing relationships. All that can be great. 
And there's some evidence to say that social media can be really helpful. But the problem is it also opens up a potential trap because social media really emphasizes status. You know, it, it tells you on the front page the number of responses that you've gotten or likes or followers or retweets, whatever platform it is. There's a lot of emphasis on quantifying measures of basically status. How much should people notice you? How much reach and influence do you have? And the truth is, for the same reasons that, uh, you know, we talked about before in the brain, that actually is addictive. You know, seeing that and getting that temporary rush of seeing that you had, you know, 300 retweets, that feels really good. And it makes you more likely to want to do it again. And some people really get trapped in only tweeting things or only posting things as a way to get others to like them and follow them and, and retweet what they're having to say. And it starts to take the humanity out of it. And we start to become those chimpanzees that are just bar pressing in order to get more signs of status. That's a problem. It's a problem when we start to, you know, lose the opportunity to make real connections and focus only on getting these temporary hits, these biological rushes, much like we would get from drugs. Um, it's also a problem when we see research studies that show that you can actually influence someone's attitudes and beliefs just by pairing things they used to hate with markers that those things got lots of likes. There's now evidence to say that just seeing something you hate associated with a lot of likes makes you hate it a lot less. That's a pretty scary way of thinking about uh, attitude and influence and persuasion that also is potentially dangerous. Yeah, that is scary. Yeah, it reminds me, there was that study done about music. It was like the Stanford Music Lab, where in one group, they had people listen to different music. There was like just like dance music, whatever. And people could see how many likes or downloads a song was getting. And like the more downloads or likes a song got, the more it got, right? It's sort of like this snowball effect. But in the other factory, people couldn't see what other people were ranking these songs and like people ended up ranking things differently. So yeah, just like seeing something like it reminds me of like Gangnam Style, that YouTube video that was like one of the most played YouTube songs ever. It wasn't a good song. Like I don't, I think it was terrible. I think if most people like if they listen to it by themselves, not knowing what other people were, you know, liking or, you know, sharing this thing, I think most people are like, this is not that great of a song, but because everyone saw that it was the most downloaded song on YouTube, like everyone started listening to it more. Like, this is actually a great catchy song. Yeah, isn't that amazing how much we are influenced by popularity? You know, try to resist clicking on a website that everyone tells you is the best website. Try to, you know, not talk about something that everyone else is talking about. It, it again goes to our basic human programming. As soon as we learn that there's something that everyone else seems to like or has visited or prefers, it, it tempts us, it pulls us in interesting ways to suddenly want to see it. We have to know about it. We have to hear about it. And in many cases, it does influence our preferences. Yeah, people will love Gangnam Style because they heard that everyone else does, even though objectively, there's no reason that anyone should ever love that song. Um, and yeah, that's what the research found as well. They manipulated that list of who had downloaded what songs. And when they took the worst song and they made it look like it was everyone's favorite, suddenly everyone started thinking it was their favorite too. It's amazing how much we're all conformists at heart, whether we think that that's happening or not. So how do you use social media without experiencing these downsides? You said it was, it can be like a drug, 
right? And most times if you have a, a drug addiction, you stop using the drug completely. Social media, you know, you're suggesting you can use social media, this potential drug, but not have the effect of that that drug of, you know, that status drive. Do you have any suggestions and based on your own experience or maybe the experience of your students and how you can navigate that? Yeah, I would say two things. You know, one is just like we might say for other things that are potentially addictive, use it in moderation. You know, catch yourself if you start finding that you're getting a little bit too stuck on it, you know, use it in moderation. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is, you know, I think we all get pulled to try and, and post things or say things because we're wondering how will that play on social media? You know, even as publicizing the book, I was encouraged to try and develop a social media profile, you know, in order to sell the book. So it became very meta to, for me to do the exact things that I had written about doing or not doing. And I, I could see the traps. I could really see it. You know, I would get followed by somebody who had millions of followers and I would start thinking, oh, well, what could I say that they'll retweet? And then once they retweet it, then maybe I'll get their followers. And, and there was this pull to start to say things just to game the system, whether I, you know, firmly believed in those things or not. And, and that was to me a really good sign of, wait a minute, if I'm doing these things only as a way of gaining status, but I don't sincerely care or believe in them as much as it might seem, that's a bad sign. That's when you need to log off, you know, for a little while and, and kind of realize that you are being, you know, lured into the world of status and it's no longer a genuine expression of who you are anymore. So, that, that to me was a good warning sign of, of when I needed to take a pause. So I know a lot of our listeners are parents and you, you end the book talking about how, what parents can do to help their children navigate the world of status. As you said, this is something that affects us significantly throughout our lives, but like no one really sits down to tell you like, here's what you can do to be more likable. And here's how you shouldn't, you know, seek status popularity. Um, so knowing that likable children tend to do better later in life than unlikable or even unpopular kids, should parents go out of their way to make their kids likable? I mean, for example, my kids starting, you know, school and I've already seen this happen. Like the parents, all the, every parent in this class is like having a, a back to school party and like, just like, there's like three of them or something this week. And I'm just like, that never happened when I was a kid. I'm like, geez, parents take it easy. Um, so should parents go out of their way to like groom their kids social life? So they're more likable, you know, maybe they should, because all the things that we teach kids, whether it's reading or writing or, you know, uh, other skills that are formally taught in school, those are important. We should be teaching those, but the research does say that, Teaching kids, uh, kids that are likable tend to have greater success in every measure at work, their salaries, their relationship happiness, even their children's happiness. Um, it's all predicted and it predicts above and beyond all those things we formally teach. So I would say, yes, we absolutely should be teaching kids how to be likable. The key is to make sure that we understand the difference between the two kinds of popularity and we don't accidentally start teaching them to become popular in the way that refers to status, because that will lead to bad outcomes. So um, I really hope that people are able to use the information uh, that's provided in the book really well to, you know, it's basically kind of an instruction manual of exactly how to, you know, help think about the factors that are making your kids more or less likable and how to avoid the traps that will make them um, care too much about status, which is what we don't want. 
Well, Mitch, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? The book is called Popular and it's available at all major retailers, of course. And my website is mitchprinstein.com. And that also has some links to the book and some other resources. All right, Mitch Princeton, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. My guest today is Mitch Princeton. He's the author of the book Popular, The Power of Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about his work at mitchprinstein.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash popular, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, you've gotten something out of it since you know, you've been listening for a while, appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.